Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We are in Hebrews again, so we're just going to jump right in. I'll tell you ahead of time, fighting a little bit of a sinus infection by a little bit. I mean, a lot of one. So if I cough a little bit, uh, just ask for a little bit of grace. Uh, from you in that, I'm not trying to sound more manly in deep voice. It is just the, uh, the good old sinus infection. So uh, here we go. Uh, Hebrews uh, is where we're at um, starting the second chapter. It says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you draw near to us. Uh, We need your help. I pray that our hearts would see the beauty that is found in this text, the goodness of the king that draws us in, uh, that, that pulls us closer to him. I pray that we would see that clearly that our hearts would be overwhelmed with that, that we would see that as uh, good, as your love extended, that we would not feel that it is duty, uh, that we're called to draw near to you. Uh, Draw us in, Lord. Uh, Capture our hearts, stir our affections. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so uh, the book of Hebrews, two messages in. Uh, I did the opener. Uh, Blake did a great job with a really hard text last week. Uh, Jesus is better than the the angels, uh, and, and we'll jump right into the second chapter now. So the series is entitled Jesus is Better, and, and that's for good reason. That's our, our, our slogan or our catchphrase, and, and we get that because over the book of Hebrews, it's said over and over and over again that Jesus is better or more excellent than about everything that you can imagine. But the natural question that I want to uh, kind of ask this morning is what do we do with that? Okay, so the reality, Jesus is better over 13 times, but what do we do with the reality of Jesus being better? The question that I want you to ask is really the cynical question of so what? Okay, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Uh, what do I do with his superiority? Because that's suppress- precisely what the author leans into in the text today. So it's going to be really important to realize early on that the declarations of Jesus' betterness, the, the more excellentness, that happen over and over again. They're not an attempt from the Godhead uh, to get you to back Jesus or vote for him uh, like a political candidate. We're entering primary election season, uh, so that's super fun. Everyone wants your vote. Uh, the TV screens, uh, the radio, your devices. Uh, and if you've been at home uh, yesterday or last Saturday, you probably even had somebody uh, maybe knock on your door and ask if they can hand you a flyer and, and tell you about their, their candidate because they want you to think that their candidate is better than the opposition. And then with your thought of their betterness, they want you to do this. They want you to vote for them. All right? They want your vote. And politicians do this for a really easy to understand reason. Without your vote, they do not get any power. It is only with your vote that they get their power. Their plans, their ideas, their strategy, their reign will never come to fruition if you do not vote for them. Without your vote, they have nothing. So functionally, their power hinges on your acceptance of their message and belief that they are better. What's crucial to understand in the book of Hebrews is Jesus is nothing like any of that. 
You do not change him by your acceptance of what you feel about him. Your vote of confidence has no bearing on Christ's power or his plans or his identity or his deity. You do not complete Jesus. You do not enlarge his frame. You do not make him a better version of himself by believing that he is better than other things around you. In other words, Jesus doesn't need you at all. And let that kind of sit on you. He doesn't need you, but you need him. I need him. And our belief in him personally, though it does not change him, it changes everything for us, including our eternity. We need to get that straight. Now, I realize that saying Jesus doesn't need you may feel heavy or offensive and like offend your sensibilities. Oh, he doesn't need me. I'm not saying he doesn't love you. He loves you very, very much. In fact, he has done enough to prove that he loves you. He stepped down from heaven to die for the ones that he's wanting to to save. His love is ultimately clear and unquestionable. He just doesn't need you. God does not need our approval to be a better version of himself. God does not need us to do something in order to secure his power or his knowledge. Uh, And God does not change his plans or or gain power or anything else like that in the universe by what humans do. You do not change God at all. Uh, If there is a God that gains power by you believing in him, I don't think you probably want to believe in him. I don't think it's a firm foundation for your life. So the author just wants to show us, hey, Jesus is nothing like that. You don't change him if you believe in him. Uh, He doesn't uh, need you, but he loves you and you need him desperately. If Jesus is not a politician like that who who gains power and influence by us believing that he is better, then what is he? Well, Jesus is what Hebrews will talk about. He's the Alpha and Omega. What does that mean in biblical language? It means he's the first and the last. He's at the beginning and he will stand there at the end no matter what anyone says. Nothing came before him. Nothing will come after him. He is and always will be. This is who Jesus is. He's the better revelation of God. This is what we saw in chapter one. He's better than the prophets. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When you see him, you see God's glory revealed. He is the exact imprint of the Father's character and the Father's being. Jesus is, as chapter one said, the the creator of the universe. He's the inheritor and the owner of the universe, and he is the sustainer of everything in the entire universe. He is the better priest who finishes work and was able to sit down. He is the one who sacrifices for our sins, and, and by his complete and final work, no other sacrifices need to happen. He's the one who overthrows death. As Genesis puts it, he's the snake crusher. The newfound term in our house, he's the sin stealer, and he is the death defeater who will one day return again. We're going to work on these amens. A lot of those have been really, really good times, okay? See the beauty in what I'm about to say, because again, I wasn't trying to be offensive when I said God doesn't need you. This God needs nothing from you, and yet he came for you. We're in a meritocracy. We do things to get things. Well, why would I do that if I don't get anything? He gets nothing from you. He needs nothing from you, and yet Jesus came to lay his life down for you out of love, not need. See, this is the beauty of God's redemptive plan in Jesus. Love and mercy overflows from the the, the heart of the Godhead. Jesus didn't die to secure an angle, and he didn't die for a selfish motive. The Savior King died to love those who are lost in, his, in their sin. Believing that Jesus is better then, 
is about you and not him. It's a whole case we're building. It has a whole lot to do with your life and your eternity, but it doesn't change him at all. And that's actually really good news. So let's clarify for uh, a second by remembering the context of the book of Hebrews. There's a group who followed Judaism and they have converted to Christianity. They were devoted to the God of the Bible, the sacrificial system, and the laws, but now they believe in Jesus. They've thrown the full weight of their hope into Christ. They believe in his atoning work for their sin on the cross, and they realize that all the laws and all the sacrifices and all the Old Testament prophets actually point to Jesus the entire time. So they've converted over to Christianity. Their new faith and conversion to Christ uh, was wonderful until persecution came. Suddenly, they started experiencing social and economic and physical persecution. So in the social spectrum, all of a sudden, they're the weirdos, they're the outsiders. They're, they're not exactly invited to get-togethers anymore. Uh, in the social construct or in the economic construct, it, it hurt them in the job market to follow Jesus. It could hurt their ability to put food on the table. Some of them were being thrown into jail, beaten, and some of them even killed. There was massive persecution that came. The weight and pain of the persecution became so heavy for them that they started wondering if they'd be better off without Jesus. They started looking over their shoulder going, maybe those other days were better. Maybe we should go back to Judaism instead of following Christ. In their minds, they're like, you know, if if we make the transition back to Judaism, we're not going to be pagans. We'll still be God-fearing people of faith. We'll just do it without the, the Jesus part and the chaos part, and it's just going to be a whole lot easier. This is the backdrop of the book of Hebrews. It's written to those people, urging them to see clearly who Jesus is and that he is superior than everything else so that they will not leave. It's circling back. Uh, this, this call to see Jesus, who he truly is, again, is not a desperate attempt to keep church numbers up, Uh, This is not like a needy girlfriend or boyfriend begging someone to stay. This is a very shepherdly book. It's directing them to see that they need Jesus clearly. There's times where if we're not careful, we'll paint Jesus into a a little bit of a corner uh, and we'll make him kind of like this sad, sappy, needy uh, type of person. As if he's begging and pleading, oh no, please love me, and oh please accept me, and and please think I'm, I'm better. Well, Christ is not callous or uh, indifferent or uncaring about us. We must never paint him in to be in this position of need. So the author in chapter 1 has poured out tremendous evidence for Jesus' betterness, notably saying one day God will make all of his enemies, all those who will not submit and follow to him, a footstool under his feet. Like It's a pretty strong power play. Everyone who does not submit will be placed under his feet. One day all of creation will yield to the lordship of King Jesus. They'll do it gladly by following and trusting him, or they'll do it through judgment. The thing that we need to realize is all of history is headed to this point. Everyone's headed to judgment. Everyone is headed to King Jesus, either in submission or judgment. No exceptions. With judgment firmly in view, the person of Jesus and the reality of judgment, with those things understood that everyone is headed to this point, the author says, therefore, because all that I have told you, we must pay pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it, or so we don't drift 
away. So look at the qualifiers and the urgency of the statement that we find here. We must, not should, not can, not if we want to or could possibly think about it. We must pay much, not a little, not a tad, not a tiny bit, but much. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. I remind you, so far in the book of Hebrews, there's been no asks, no commands. It's been all declarative. Everything that has been said is, this is what is true about Jesus. It doesn't tell you, so do this or do this or do this. It's, this is who Jesus is. And now we get the first of many warnings in the book of Hebrews. Over the course of Hebrews, there's going to be more of these. Each one of them is a pretty big deal to us. For this one, the author says, we must pay much closer attention. That's the command part. Then the warning is so we don't drift away. I found this first warning utterly fascinating, considering the book and the context, right? Think of what's going on. Think of the art of negotiation, or even if you're debating a person, right? You immediately decide the lines. Where am I? Where are they? What are we trying to do here? So on one side, you have a group of people who's thinking about ditching Jesus and ditching Christianity. That, that's the Hebrews that are getting the book in the beginning, a group who's thinking of walking away. And on the other, you have an author making the case that you should hold fast. A group thinking of splitting and a guy trying to make them not split. The options are leave altogether or stay as you are. So the options seem to, to be really simple. The win, the touchdown seems to be if they maintain precisely the type of faith that they had before thinking of leaving. But that, that, think, that seems to be it. If the Hebrews maintain the status quo, stay where you are, do what you've been doing. If you do that, everything will be fine. But look what the author calls them to. He doesn't call them to maintain the status quo. He doesn't say just don't leave. He calls them to deeper faith. They're thinking about leaving Jesus or, or, or forgetting about him. They're thinking of rejecting Jesus and doing faith without him. And yet the author goes all in by skipping over the ask to just stay the same. And he says, no, 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 you must pay much closer attention. He doesn't say, hey, just please stay and do the same. No, you must pay much closer attention. He doubles down. He pushes all of his chips to the center right off the bat. And it seems like the author says, reject your impulse to back off from Jesus and do the opposite, sprint at him. Whether you're thinking of leaving or, or whether you're not, the impulse is run at him, press into him, lean into what you've heard, which we see later in the text is the message of this great salvation which comes by through and in the person and work of Jesus alone. The message is clear. Push forward, don't retreat. Run at Christ, not away. Fight to lean in. And, and church, here's what we need to understand, because we can divorce ourselves from this book and go, well, that's just the other people who are thinking of running away from Jesus. The message is for all believers. Wherever you stand, thinking of running away, thinking of weary, press in. Run at the king. And next we see the reason why. The author isn't just trying to overplay his hand. He's not making a, a bluff, right? He's not at the poker table trying to pretend he has a much better situation than he does. The reason the, the, the Hebrews and followers of Jesus need to press in, the reason that he says that we must pay much closer attention is because if we don't, we will drift away. 
Notice the reasoning. Thank you. Notice the reasoning here in the text. Pay closer attention, or we will drift. Not they will drift, we will drift. The word drift is, is a nautical term, like a boat on the ocean. If, if you have a boat in a small lake, I know people think the lake of the Ozarks is big. It's not. It's just gross. That wasn't in the notes. You put a boat in a small lake and you turn it off, it's not going to go very far. Why? It's in a little pond. There's not big currents or anything like that. But if you do the same thing in in the ocean, if you take a boat out into the ocean and you just stop and you turn the engine off and you don't put any anchor down, what's going to happen? The currents of the ocean are going to pull on you. Whether you're doing anything or not, you're going to get moved because the current will pull you in the direction that it's going. If you ever swam in the ocean, you've probably experienced the exact same thing. What do you do? You set your stuff down on the beach. You go into the water. You play for a little bit. And then you're like, oh, man, I'm 100 yards down from where I thought I would be. Slowly but surely, the water pulls you in a direction that you didn't even realize that you were going. You're just playing. You're having a good time. You're trying to do the body surfing thing, all of that. Epically got water in your sinuses. And then all of a sudden, I'm a long ways off. What's happened? The drift happens imperceptible to our minds. Why? And hear this. It's imperceptible because it's slow and gradual. Slowly, quietly, one bit after another, it pulls us. And eventually you end up noticing, this is not where I wanted to be. The author says this is what it's like spiritually for us. We are prone to drifting. A quote that jumped out at me this week, it's really simple, and maybe I'm simple too, but it just it struck me as profound. In the ocean, those who row in the wrong direction are not the only ones who fail to reach their desired destination. It's also those who do not row at all. That's not the way our minds think. We normally think that someone gets in a bad spot spiritually by, by commissioning like a stupid action or a sin, right? But we think that to get in a bad spot spiritually, you're going to have like a hidden pervasive sin or some sort of habit. But the author warns us intentional sin isn't the only way to get lost. Not paying attention is actually a much bigger cause of trouble to you and me. Again, why? Because you don't feel it happening. You don't sense the drift until it's already done its thing. This is where we need to pause and be probably honest with each other. Some of you are great at at, at admitting it, maybe a little too good, and some of you don't like to admit it. There's a part of all of us that is just drawn to other things, things other than Christ, things that have no eternal significance. Our hearts left to themselves are extremely prone to chase other things. For this reason, many things can cause us to drift if we aren't attentive. What are some of them? We won't do an exhaustive list, but suffering. Suffering is a really huge cause of drifting because it can begin to derail a person's faith. All of a sudden, they're only paying attention to their pain. 
Opposition may be the thing that makes you want to give up. This is what the Hebrews were dealing with. Or busyness and distraction to your spiritual life can also be a really big source of drifting. Or sin that you harbor and refuse to repent of. The causes are many, but they must be realized. Many things can take our eyes away from Jesus. And it probably needs to be internalized. Many things can take my eyes off of Jesus. Many things have taken my eyes off of Jesus. In our culture right here and right now, busyness seems to be the worst. We have insane schedules. Kids do more activities in elementary school than I used to do in high school. Jobs. Here's one of the biggest ones. Chasing an early retirement and a better 401k can suck away all of your attention. Hobbies, screens, news cycles, and so much else. They're just things that we're drowning in. And in that spot, the author says, regardless of your busyness, regardless of your circumstance, because here's the thing, we all think our situation is special. It's not. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your perceived busyness, he says to you and I, all of us, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. He says it to the Hebrews, he says it to your heart, and he says it to mine so that we don't drift away. Why? Because I am not and you are not immune to it. Circle back. What's the, what's the defense against drifting? What's paying closer attention to what you've heard? This is how you resist the drift, right? We just got done with the book of Romans. Romans 10, verse 7, says it this way. Faith comes through hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the message of Jesus. Shows us it's not only salvation that requires the message of Jesus, but sanctification, and if we'll make up a new term, anti-drifting, requires the message of Jesus. The constant message of the Bible is look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Now, yes. Now, yes. Still, yes. Look at him to be saved. Look at him to stand firm. Look at him to grow. Look at him when you suffer. Look at him when you're busy. Look at him over and over and over. Al Mohler says, Christian faithfulness has no secret formula. We all want a life hack, don't we? An easy button. We don't, we don't get one, though. See, God sanctifies us through the word. We avoid spiritual drift through his word. By reading it hearing it. Here's the hard one in our busyness, by meditating on it. Spending some time without your phone or noise to just think about it. And here's the other side too, and obeying it. We avoid drift by dropping the anchors of our soul into the deep waters of God's word. That's how Moeller finished his quote. Without it, we drift away. So the author says, so pay attention. Pay attention to what you've heard, and, and here's, here's maybe the, the handles. Pay attention to what your heart prioritizes. 
pay attention to what your heart is paying attention to. Right? Temperature check. I'm not brilliant. You know the question would be coming. This week, just this week, since we left last week, what have you paid attention to? I'll give you a nice awkward second to think about it. What's been going on? What mattered? What does your heart spend its time marinating on? What things filled your mind? What things captured your heart? Was Christ part of what you paid attention to? Any part? Or did other things, lesser things, push the king of the universe to the margins? And he thought, well, maybe next week. What had your attention through the week? What's had your attention this month, this year, this season? Now hear me, if anything wells up in your heart and you're just bothered by that question, if you immediately start thinking, well, that feels kind of legalistic, feels kind of rigid, Sound like my, sounds like the church my, my parents grew up in. I want to say gently, but also extremely intentionally. The king asking for your attention isn't legalism, it's love. So much in our hearts that thinks any type of intentionality is mean. He's trying to love you. The king isn't trying to take from you, and he proved it with his blood. He's trying to give you what you could never get on your own. We have to stop thinking that intentionality is duty. That is a childish way. Let me slow down my heart. That's a childish way to justify being lazy. Attention is not legalism. You can go through the Gospels, even Jesus talking through, like count the cost. He says it over and over and over again. In the rest of the text, we find a scary and a joy-filled reason to pay attention. You may call one side fire and brimstone and the other grace and mercy, and yet they're both there. For the heavier side, Paul says in the message declared by angels, he's going to be referencing back to the the text that Blake did a great job in uh, last week. In the message declared by angels, it taught that every transgression or disobedience had a just retribution. So how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? We don't know exactly how, uh, but angels helped in the delivering of the old covenant to the people of God. And in the old covenant, there's a clear message, right? The, The old first covenant, angels had a hand in bringing it. There's a clear message that you reject this message and you reject this God and it's gonna lead you to the judgment and wrath of God. The author is saying, okay, he's going from lesser to greater. If you believe the message that an angel gave you, if you accept and believe that it'll bring wrath if you ignore it, what do you think's gonna happen to the person How are they going to escape if they reject the message of Jesus? Again, if Jesus is greater than angels, his message can't be rejected. You see the logic? You're trying to go back to their covenant, 
if the better one has given you a new one, why would you accept the lesser if the greater has given you this? This argument doesn't land on us the way it did for them, but the warning still stands. Rejecting Jesus' message is rejecting God. And rejecting God is something that you cannot escape the penalty of. Remember the context again, right? The people were thinking about escaping Jesus. We're going to do faith without him. We're going to return to the old covenant. We're going to walk away from Christ. The author is saying, Christ is your escape from eternal judgment. How will you escape? How will you find pardon? How will you find peace with God without Jesus? And that's a rhetorical question because the answer is you cannot. There are those who hate talking about judgment and the wrath of God. I think it's archaic and it's a tool of manipulation and Super fun words like abuse and all that kind of stuff comes up when you talk about wrath of God. But the book of Hebrews brings it up because I think that a healthy faith has to look at the wrath of God. We cannot see the goodness of the gospel. We cannot see the unspeakable blessing of the gospel without looking at the reality of what it saves us from. Without the gospel, we are, as Ephesians 2 puts it, dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead, lost. Enemies of God, children of wrath who reject him adamantly. And this term, children of wrath, if you just think about it for a while, the wrath of God will come for you because you've rejected him, but then you in your brokenness hand out wrath as you rage against God. This is who you are without him. We're those who commit cosmic treason against a holy God, and because of that sin and that treason, God's justice will collide with us. Revelation says Jesus will return and tread the winepress of God's wrath one day. It shows us clearly that the king will return not like this helpless little lamb begging you to give him time. He will with fire in his eyes and a sword out of his mouth bring justice to every corner of the earth. No, per- no person will escape it. Justice will flow. And it'll swallow everything. If that makes you uncomfortable, if it bothers you, if it offends you, man, I'm not trying to be offensive at all. I'd remind you in all of this, like, it's horrific imagery. Jesus comes back treading the wine press. Those are metaphors of, of blood and wrath and, and, and destruction. Yes, it's a horrific image. But for how horrific that is, what he's also telling you is, There's a savior that gets you out of all of that. God sent Jesus to give us a way to be redeemed out of that judgment. And this is why the author calls it such a great salvation. The gospel of Jesus is that every man, woman, and child is a sinner. We have all sinned. We've all rejected God's laws and his commands. Because of our rejection, the due penalty of that rejection would be the wrath of God. Why? Because we have all rejected him. But Jesus has come to live the perfect life that we could not, that we were incapable of living, and then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins himself. Here's the audacity of the gospel. When that imagery of the wine, uh, the, the wine press of God's wrath, when that bothers you, that Jesus will come and tread the wine press of God's wrath, the audacity of, of the gospel is he'll not only tread it, he's the one who gets tread on. He's the one that receives the wrath. You're like, it sounds horrific. It is, and he took it for you. This is the gospel. The king receives the penalty 
for the wrongdoers. God pours out wrath on the Son so that you and I could escape it if we believe in Him and throw the full weight of our belief into Him. In our place, Jesus stands. Why? So you can escape judgment. Yes, the wrath of God is weighty. It's scary. The Old Testament understood this way better than, than, than we do. They talked about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. He's not like us. But this is also why our hearts should find worship. The wrath due he received. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God so you would not encounter it. And that's where we get the beauty of texts like there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which means the cup of wrath for you is empty. Every time the enemy accuses you, God hates you, he rejects you, the cup's empty, it's gone. Jesus took the full cup of God's wrath and then he sat down meaning there's nothing left and there's nothing else that you can do to me. It's been taken. This is the beauty of the great salvation. It's also why the Bible heralds words like, those who understand how much they've been loved will love much. When you understand how big of the action of what Jesus did for you is, worship will be what flows out of the heart. He's done such a great thing. Jesus, the one who is better, came to save you from yourself. He came not to take anything from you but to give you life in him. The message of our culture is religion and faith is, is just trying to harness people in. It's just trying to steal their life. It's just, trying to, it's, trying, it's just trying to hem them in and not give them a good life. The message of the Bible is completely opposite. Jesus has come to give you what you could never get on your own. The author says, for any thinking of walking away from this Jesus, for any who feel tired or weary they don't know if they can keep going, or if they don't, just don't know if they want to keep going. He says, don't give up. Don't walk away. Run towards him. Not only will it keep you from drifting, but in that place where you press into Jesus with all that you are, he will meet you there, walk with you, and give you life in him. The constant fight for us is to remember that we find life in Jesus, not away from him. It's not in money. It's not in sex. It's not in sports, it's not in hobbies, it's not in accolades, it's not what other people think about you. Life is in Christ. The author's reminding us of that. And he's also warning us, don't turn to other things. They won't give you what they promise. Only Jesus can give you the rest that your soul needs. Only Jesus is the fountain that won't run dry. Only Jesus will sustain you, will fill you, will complete you. Because the warning and the call are clear in the text, I feel it's appropriate to ask, are you now paying attention and following this Jesus? Do not assume it. Are you following him? Have you turned to him? The one who offers to pay for your sin, redeem you, remake you. He offers to give you a new name, one that has no shame to it. the one who will heal your heart and heal your soul. If you have not, I just present you with the question, why? 
What better promise have you found elsewhere? Why? See that God is drawing you. Even the wrestle with it is the hand of God drawing. See that God's offer is gracious and good. He loves you and he cares for you. The hope is that if you haven't, is that you would pray and ask the Lord, Lord, you save me through Jesus. Ask Jesus to be your king. You're, Man, I don't even know what that means. He'll teach you. It's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out to follow him. You just have to submit to his lordship. Don't drift anymore. Come home to the Father who's calling you in. And I'd love to pray with you about that if you're not sure what that even looks like. There's no better promise that you will receive. And then I'd ask for those who would say that they are following Jesus. Are you drifting? Has your attention and focus been elsewhere? Are the currents of life pulling you every which way imaginable? Do you feel out of control? If that's you and you realize it this morning, it's the love of God that's showing you that. It's the love of God reaching out to you to pull you back in, to wake you up, to bring repentance to you today. See, God chases after and corrects those that he loves. Receive that if need be. There's this thing in our, in our hearts like, I'm not drifting, like get angry and upset. The Bible tells us that the proof that we are God's is that he'll always run after us and bring us back. He will chase after you. Will we have maybe some slight moments that we drift in our life? Possibly. But he'll always pull you back in. So the reality of God showing you your drifting is the beauty of the manifestation of God's love and it's proof that you're actually his. Remember, God leaves the 99 to find the one, even the one who's drifting. It shouldn't cause you to be angry. It should cause you to worship. God loves you. And through that love, he's calling you back in. So what do you do with that? I, I think the play is pretty simple. You confess that you're drifting to the Lord. What he already knows. Pray that he helps you see Jesus more clearly. Remember, again, there's no shortcut. Pay much closer attention to what you heard. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you pay attention to what really matters clearly, because normally what ends up happening when we're drifting is we have a perception problem. We perceived other things to be greater. Holy Spirit, we help just realign things our priorities are just like, help, and he will. Ask the Holy Spirit to return the joy of your salvation to you and the awe of God to you. Some of, the, of you, the Lord is calling you to wake up and fight drifting, and I just, I beg of you, don't ignore it. God is pulling at you. Receive it and receive renewal. I can't help but think that some of us are desperate for renewal the first step towards renewal and the awakening of your heart is to pay closer attention, though. You don't accidentally fall into renewal. God draws you in and you listen and you repent. For others today, you find yourself in a spot where maybe you've paid close attention. Maybe in the last season, you were drifting like crazy and you're not now. 
Jesus is sweet to you and real to you. You feel his leading and you feel his love and you feel his kindness. What's the play there? Thank him. Don't assume it. God has brought you closer to him out of love for you. Thank him. Praise the Lord of the universe who's working in you. He's done work in you, and he's not done working in you. He's done a good work, and he wants to keep doing that. Man, you guys can come back up. The, the message for all people would be the same, though. Don't give up. Run after Jesus. For some, maybe for the first time, run to him. For others that have been drifting, run back to him. And for those who have been running at him, keep doing it. Run towards the Savior and see and receive the beauty of that great salvation over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We will play uh, a couple songs to end that at any point you can come up and take. But here's the beauty of what we're doing. As we take, we're reminding ourselves of the great salvation reminding ourselves of the beauty of what God has done for us through Jesus. My hope is that your heart would be filled, that you would be encouraged, that you spend some time in prayer as you walk up. Father, show me the beauty of Jesus more. Holy Spirit, show me the beauty of Jesus more. I believe it deep in my guts that there's this strong desire for some of us to experience the joy of our salvation again. Ask the Lord for it as you come to the table. And I think he'll be just and kind to show you the beauty of your salvation and draw you in. I pray that you're built up in the reality of a good salvation and that we would drift less and worship more. Would you stand and pray with me?